Welcome to the 17th episode of Blue Frontier's Rising Tide Ocean podcast. I'm your host, David Helvarg, and my co-host in Boulder is Vicki Nichols Goldstein again with the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello, everyone. And today our guest is Michael Conathan, our topic, the ocean under a Biden administration. Mike is executive director of the Aspen Institute's High Seas Initiative. Before that, directed the ocean policy at uh, the Center for American Progress, uh, whose first president was Democratic stalwart John Podesta. But since the ocean is nonpartisan, Mike also worked in the Senate for five years, primarily for Republican uh, Senator Olympia Snow of Maine. And Mike's still living there in the Pines Tree State. So uh, tell us, Mike, what what are your projections if we have a, uh, a Biden-Harris administration? I say if because we're recording this the day before Election Day. Of course, of course. Well, uh, in addition to officially being the pine tree state, I prefer to think of Maine as the lobster state. But, you know, that's that's just me. And because I'm married to a part-time commercial uh, lobsterman, um, my, my wife's been working as a sternman on a lobster boat for several summers. and uh, So it keeps keeps us connected to the, uh, to the ocean industries. And I think... Um, you know, the first thing that we're going to see uh, out of a out of a Biden-Harris administration when it comes to the ocean is 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 going to be a return to sanity around issues related to climate uh, and climate change. Um, you know, he's already declared that one of the first uh, climate uh, steps will be return to Paris, which of course we will formally be leaving uh, under the current administration the day after the election, so uh, so later this week. Um, and so we'll, we'll be reversing several decisions along those lines. But, uh, you know, I think big picture, what, what really this portends uh, is a return to, um, to science, uh, a return to, to sort of sanity in how we approach the ocean, and a return to what I would consider relative normalcy when it comes to ocean policy, which, as you can tell a little bit from my background, incorporates a heavy dose of bipartisanship. Um, I, I think one of the things that was always a hallmark for me of, uh, of ocean policy and, and one of the things that I really cherished most about working in this space was that, you know, even in, in my days in the, in the Senate, which were in the, uh, the later half of the, of the first decade of, of this century, uh, 2006 to 11 or so, um, you know, even at that time as, as the rise of the Tea Party was taking over and, and a lot of the, the shift was happening and the, and, the, and the partisan rancor was really ramping up, uh, the ocean was still an area where we all came together and worked together uh, as a collective, whether we were on the Republican side or, or the Democratic side. Um, and, and I think that's something that, that, you know, that, that sort of poison partisanship has really filtered down all the way to issues like the ocean that had otherwise remained relatively above the fray. Um, and I think, I do think a Biden administration is the clear first step towards breaking that um, barrier down, you know, rebuilding some of those bridges and really unlocking a lot of opportunity for sensible, sustainable ocean policy to sort of be the rule of the day going forward. And one of the things I saw is the ocean's always been bipartisan, but when the fossil fuel industry captured one of the two major parties, you saw a shift. I mean, when we started Blue Frontier in 2003, 2004, uh, you had a House Ocean Caucus that was co-chaired by three Democrats, three Republicans. But the Republicans, folks like Saxton of New Jersey, Gilchrist of Maryland, um, people like your former boss, Senator Olympia Snow, were sort of driven out of their party as it became the party of denial of, of 
big oil and racism. And I think that, uh, as you say, this is an issue, as Ralph Nader said on an earlier show, nobody goes to the beach and finds it polluted and says, oh, I can't take my kids in the water, but that's okay because I'm anti-regulation. I mean, this, <laughs> this is a place where people come together. And, and as you say, hopefully with the new administration, it will come together first with recognizing the science of climate, which in terms of the ocean, it's, it's changing the physical nature of the ocean. It's, it's circulation, it's temperature, it's chemistry, it's color. You know, then some specific solution-oriented actions, like we're working, we're all signed on to an ocean climate action plan, and there's now a first House bill, Ocean Climate Solutions Plan, that has support for, you know, certainly mainstream Democrats like Biden. I mean, John Podesta's behind it. Other actions on plastic and and protecting 30% of the land and the ocean have the support of mainstream Democrats like like, um, John Kerry and folks that a president Biden would be comfortable with. Yeah, I think that's um, that's definitely a big part of, of what we're going to see. And I, I've been really encouraged to see, you know, some of the preparations that are being made in advance um, of, of this election, uh, both inside and outside of Congress, um, just to be ready for the opportunity. You know, we've we've lost a lot of ground in the last four years, um, obviously on the climate front, but also on some domestic ocean policy issues. Uh, you know, we've seen rollbacks to marine protected areas um, up here in New England. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm in Augusta now, not too far from where Donald Trump was when he came up to Maine and announced the uh, that he was going to to try to roll back the Northeast Canyons and Seamounts Monument designation uh, move, which is being legally challenged. Um, so, you know, I think we've seen um, significant rollbacks in the last four years. I don't think that's news to anybody. Um, but as that's been going on, um, you know, the the um, the ocean champion community has been getting their ducks in a row and, and ready to hit the ground running. And we're seeing that already in some of these, you know, I think the ocean, um, the ocean based climate solutions act is really the first, uh, the first domino in that, you know, really the first big piece of, of direct action that we've seen come out, you know, a tremendous package put together by leadership um, of the uh, committees of jurisdiction in the House, um, uh, all sort of up and down from the, the Select Committee on Climate, the Natural Resources Committee, the Science Committee, um, you know, all coming together to to put together this package of bills, which acknowledges legislatively, really, for the first time, what those of us in the ocean community know, which is that the ocean has a tremendous role to play in the solution to climate change, um, as well as being the focus of, of a lot of the, the negative impacts of, of what we see in, in climate. And so, you know, that that's a real uh, optimistic step forward. And, and, and obviously, this is legislation that, that will not be advancing much at, in, the, in the calendar, given where the calendar is in, in this Congress, um, you know, the, the time just isn't there, and, it, and it's not the right opportunity. But um, putting that marker down, and I, and I understand there may be a hearing later this month on that bill now to, to start to build the legislative record and, and hear, um, uh, you know, from constituents and, and figure out how to even improve that bill going forward. Um, you know, we've seen several other co-sponsors jump on, including um, my Congresswoman Shelley Pingree from the first district of Maine. Um, and, you know, we've, we've got some, some more some more issues to settle out with that bill. I know there are some some concerns uh, from from some of the um, 
fishing industry and some other some other entities about some of the provisions in there, particularly the 30 by 30. Um, but I think that's one that is that's important. It's a priority. Um, you know, it's been talked about in the context of the Blue New Deal, which both Elizabeth Warren and, and Joe Biden have have um, have talked about on their campaign stumps. And you know, it's, it's and, what and the world even- is moving towards. Yeah, even our Youth Advisory Council on the Ocean Climate Action Plan, which we've worked on for 18 months, felt it wasn't enough, which is true, but it's something, it's, it's, a, it's as they say with the Paris Climate Accord, it's a floor, not a ceiling. It's the beginning of important change. And some of the changes we want to see um, that's in the plan simply don't fit in the kind of legislative niche that is the Natural Resources Committee. So we can't reform exactly. FEMA flood insurance. We can't green our ports and uh, and shipping through this bill. But this bill says there's a basic link that without the ocean, you can't draw down the carbon dioxide. You can't protect 128 million Americans living in the coastal areas from the, the impacts of, of the change we're seeing. And, you know, we have these friends uh, across Congress now that uh, can make those changes. People like Tom Udall in the Senate, who not only are good on ocean climate solutions, but have introduced bills on on plastic and the thirty by thirty. Well, let's um, jump. In, let's jump into the thirty by thirty piece of legislation because you know, being in Colorado, loving the ocean and then loving the land, this really is a great way to spread out land and ocean protection. So, tell us a little bit yeah. more about the thirty by thirty. Sure. So, of course, the 30 by 30 initiative, we're talking about the the real big picture concept of protecting in in strongly or fully protected areas, um, 30 percent of the land and 30 percent of the ocean on the planet by 2030. Um, so this is this is a global initiative. Um, and in order to get there, we've got to have buy in from every country. We've got to have and, and in, the, in the U.S., we've got to have buy in from coastal regions and the land based regions. Um, and currently, you know, we, we're we're the exact numbers escaping me at the moment, but we've done a pretty good job of of large areas in the ocean here in the U.S. The problem is um, so many of them are in our Pacific remote territories. So we've got these large marine protected areas of national marine monuments in Papahanaumokuakea um, in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. Oh shoot! And, I wanted uh, to say Pacific that. Remote <laughs> I've been working on this one for years. I love to say it every chance I get. Um, but so I'm going to say it again. Papahanaumokuakea. Uh, in fact, a taxi driver in Honolulu uh, gave me very positive feedback on my pronunciation of that. So I felt that was one of my great career <laughs> that was accomplishments. Very good. So, so we've got that. We've got the Pacific and, and just, Islands. We've just to these. be clear for people, that's a 1,200 mile fetch of ocean that is um, larger than all our national parks combined that contains, you know, 70% of U.S. corals and endangered species like monk seals, tiger sharks, sea turtles. It's one of the most amazing protected areas on the planet. Yeah, and it's a huge chunk of the United States Exclusive Economic Zone. And of course, our EEZ is larger than all of our land mass. So we actually have a larger ocean territory in this country than we do a land territory. Um, and and in, so in order to protect, get to that 30% number, you know, we're, we're probably, we're over 20%. Like we're probably close to 25% right now. Um, 
But the problem there is that it's all one type of ecosystem. So it's all very highly concentrated in these remote Pacific atolls, which are spectacular areas and desperately in need of protection and conservation. But they don't reflect really the diversity of habitat and the diversity of ecosystem that we have throughout the range of our exclusive economic zone. Um, you know, we have the one small area in New England that that will once again be protected um, once the legal challenges are over, and, and we have a new president who who you know understands the value of, of protecting these these zones, um, or that's what we expect anyway. We have our network of national marine sanctuaries, which are um, extra, extraordinary and protect um, amazing resources of of cultural and natural heritage um, with varying degrees of protection. There's some fishing allowed in some of those areas, commercial and recreational. So they're not qualified as fully protected areas. But overall, we're looking at a, we're, we're pretty close to that 30% number, but what we really need is greater diversity in the U.S. And then from a lands perspective, um, you know, we're, we're at about, I think, 15% of, of U.S. lands. That may even be a little high. I'll have to double check my figures on that, David and Vicky. But um, but the, but really, what this does when you put them together as a collective and say we need to protect 30% of the planet, land and ocean, what you're doing is building a constituency. Uh, and this was what was incredibly valuable as we were pursuing some of those marine monument designations and expansions during the Obama administration. Was we we brought the ocean community together as a collective to identify the places that were most in need of protection. That prioritized them for the administration in a way that they could act on them um, in, a, in, a, in a much more um, sort of accurate and aggressive manner to, to get those protections in place. And I think as we build those constituencies across the ocean and the land-based communities, um, we just, you know, we double that momentum and we get people like Senator Udall and, and we get people like uh, from Colorado and we get the Inland Ocean Coalition. Uh, and Vicki, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, managing a program for the Aspen Institute, when I go out to 8,000 feet above sea level, it's actually my favorite place to talk about the ocean. Because you can still have these conversations about how every other breath you're taking comes from the ocean and your climate is based on the ocean and the snow that you're skiing on used to be the ocean, you know, and it just ties these connections together for people and, in a really amazing way. And, and this is really what we've been about 15 years is, is building the constituency, what I call the seaweed, marine grassroots. But the marine grassroots, as you say, grow in, in every soil. Um, you know, with the Ocean Climate Action Plan, we're talking about, and we are bringing together like the largest shellfish, you know, aquaculture company, because they're feeling it from the effects of ocean acidification to the insurance industry, because they're seeing all the impacts of climate change, particularly in coastal zones with hurricanes and new flood zones expanding and you know and reaching out to communities of color having people like robert ballard kind of the father of environmental justice because it's all about linking the environment with equity and i think this is this is the promise in a biden harris administration i mean he's the first guy in the 80s to introduce a climate bill um senator harris introduced the equity bill so 40 percent of their um you know, of, of their climate budget will go to communities at risk, which are mostly fence line communities of color in our ports and in our cancer alleys of, of petrochemical plants along our coastlines in Texas, Louisiana. And, and maybe a third aspect that's already very popular with the public, but in terms of real action, would be around plastic. We just had a, a new report come out saying that the U.S. is actually responsible for five times the amount of plastic going into the ocean that we previously claimed. And, and yep. Vicky, Vicky, you're familiar with the plastics bill that might become a reality in a 
Biden yeah, administration. Yeah, and I, I think that really ties into the social justice component. <clears throat> so when I, um, I think all of us have been using the figure over the last five years where there's about 8 million tons of single-use plastic that enters the ocean every year. And then this new study came out and they're like, whoa, whoa, that was modest. We're now looking at about 15 million tons. So you think about in only five years, we've practically doubled the amount of plastic pollution that ends up in our ocean. So there is one act that I am very excited about, and that is the Break Free from Plastics Act, which will get to the core of our problem with plastic pollution and reducing the build out. So can you talk a little bit more about some of those elements that can really help change how we address plastic pollution in the United States and actually globally, because this has far reaching impacts? Absolutely. So full disclosure, I'm not super familiar with that legislation. I, I'm aware that it was introduced and I know sort of big picture. So I'm going to talk about this in, in, in sort of broader strokes. And, and I think in general, uh, the issue of plastics is, is a critical one. And it's another great issue for building constituencies because it is, it is the, piece, the other piece of the ocean that everybody touches every day. Everybody in America touches something plastic every day, at least. Uh, and so that's an easy message to make. You know, you put that thing in the trash, you don't really think about it. But, you know, increasingly, you know, we're, we're getting to to a point where plastics is at the forefront of everybody's mind when they think about the ocean. Um, and it, it does create an opportunity. And I think I think one of the things that that if I'm remembering correctly, that legislation does is in addition to setting caps on the amount of of plastic in terms of manufacturing and and what's going to enter the supply chain. Um, there's also this issue of investing in alternatives, because this is this is another piece of of how we we need to start thinking about the ocean and ocean sustainability and even ocean conservation as actually an economic growth engine, because it provides opportunities to develop new industries that are going to be fundamentally more sustainable, that are going to move us out of the, I guess to use a fossil fuel analogy, to move us out of the horse and buggy and into the automobile, but to do it in a way that's, that's much more sustainable and doesn't produce the negative, the negative implications. Um, you know, it's about, you know, what's next. Uh, and so for plastics, you know, what are the alternatives? You know, we're, we, we're looking at, you know, potentially algae-based plastics. We're looking at, you know, you can, you can go to, to Iceland and see what they're doing with their um, sustainably managed fisheries, where they're taking those fish and not just taking a fillet and chucking the rest, but then they're taking the rest of that fish and using it to turn into new products, some of which can be, you know, part packaging. You know, there are elements of... Gives, gives new meaning to already. fish wrap. It's using the whole... <laughs> Buffalo. When I come up with the, using the whole buffalo analogy, like what's the buffalo fish? I'm not sure, but that's it, right? It's the whole buffalo. And so actually at this point in, in Iceland, the, the value that they get from a cod, from the non-food products of a cod is actually higher than the food product of a cod. So not to say that we should go catch all the cod because you still have to build that sustainability piece in. But what it does is it provides opportunities for new industries to emerge, for entrepreneurship to take hold and for these types of, of new ideas to really take off, continue to generate jobs just in a different way. And, um, and I think there's a lot of that to be had in the plastic space as well. And, and this is why 
Blue Frontier like partnered with the Center for the Blue Economy in, in launching our Ocean Climate Action Plan is, is because to talk about the economic benefits. I mean, you look at when we went from whale oil, which was the lubricant of the machine age, to rock oil, to petroleum, there was a tremendous economic expansion. And there's no reason to doubt that in moving from fossils to renewable energy, there's going to be a similar uh, moment of innovation and economic expansion that we'll see offshore with the, the switch from offshore oil and gas, which was all the, the Trump administration was about, seeing the ocean essentially as a gas station and a garbage dump. Um, it's an easy transfer. The roughnecks and roustabouts that I've been on offshore rigs with have all the skills to be linesmen and turbine technicians on the offshore wind farms that are already in development. Mm-hmm. Um, the Trump administration has slowed down the process where all the least leasing money has come in recently for offshore wind, not for oil and gas. And so Biden administration's committed to, to no more offshore oil and gas, but su- being supportive of, of offshore wind and other uh, technologies that have potential to grow, whether it's wave or tidal or current energy or OTEC, ocean thermal. Um, mm-hmm. There's this great opportunity. There's also, I mean, the last piece I wrote, hopefully the last piece on Trump and the environment for the progressive magazine called Trump to Ocean Drop Dead. And there's this institutional malaise he's also created, you know, putting a coal man in charge of the EPA and an oil man in charge of interior. And they now have a climate denier in uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. And for example, when you had Sharpie Gate, when uh, President Trump declared that this hurricane was going to Alabama. It wasn't. The local NOAA weather office said, don't worry, people of Alabama, there's no hurricane coming this way. And within a week, the head of NOAA, the political appointee, was castigating the Alabama Weather Service for being accurate. Craig McLean, the head of NOAA's science division, put out a report. He said the political appointee should uh, take a course in science ethics. And the response was Trump put in a new head of NOAA, and they replaced Greg and put in a climate denier as the head of science for NOAA. There's tremendous morale collapse in many institutions and in many agencies, and this is going to be a rebuilding process. I, I think Craig McLean, who's got a 30-year-plus record at NOAA, including in the NOAA Corps, would be a great administrator. One, because we ought to reward those public servants who stood up for science and truth. And two, it would just be a great morale booster to hire from within. But, you know, looking at the Coast Guard, at NOAA, at the, at the frontline agencies, um, we have to grow them back as real forces to, uh, you know, to manage and enforce on our final frontier. You know, I, I just want to go back for a moment because we've talked about break free from plastic, the ocean climate solution. 30 by 30. And what I I think is really important to look at is we are moving into, we hope, an administration that will say, we need to just move away from fossil fuels. And with a break free, you know, that is the feedstock for single use plastics, fossil fuels. We end up with ocean pollution. With 30 by 30, we're kind of protecting public lands and our our coastal resources from impacts, including offshore oil development. And then, of course, with climate, we're reducing our fossil fuel impacts and addressing ocean acidification. So in a way, all three of these initiatives that we're very excited about really go back to the core issue where we have to reduce fossil fuels 
and look at alternative energies. And I think with the Biden administration, this is so critical that we are completely flipping where we have been with the Trump administration from extractive harmful fossil fuels to something we all really believe in, you know, healthy oceans, healthy air, healthy climate. So kind of moving into some next steps, Michael, what do you think might be the next couple of first steps? We're going to have a new leader, um, but that's not going to change the attitudes that have persisted, right? The attitudes that led us to a place where Donald Trump became the president of the United States. And so I think one of the, one of the things that is going to be key to this is creating, figuring out how we get back to an era of mutual conversation, um, mutual respect, and, and ultimately the reality of compromise not being a dirty word in a lot of senses. Like I'm, I'm very much um, a person who, you know, having spent my time on both sides of the aisle, Republican in the Senate, working for a progressive think tank, I don't think that the, the perpetual pendulum of um, swinging from one extreme to the other and trying to take back and, and throw out everything the old guy did and start doing the things that the new that the new guy needs to do. We have to find a balance between the urgency of acting on climate, which is imperative, but also the need to bring others along with us in that conversation. And and so it's that sort of constant carrot stick conversation. Like you can't just hit people over the head with it and say, well, now we have a new boss. And so you've got to be on our team. Like you have to bring them along and show them why it's going to be good for them in the first place. So for, for my philosophy, what, what, you know, what we need, we got to figure out how to get back to this kind of coalition building. Um, and, and really the way that we're going to need, we're going to have to do that is by a return to reliance on science. Uh, and, you know, you've gotten at this, David, in your conversation about Craig and, and, the, and the reality of how this administration, Trump administration, has treated science as something to be ignored and dismissed if it doesn't agree with your preconceived notions. And I think we, need, we as, the, uh, as, as the potential, uh, well, I don't want to say we, I'm, I'm not a part of the Biden administration in any way at this point, but, but I, I believe in what they're potentially bringing to the table in their new administration, which is a return to leading with science and doing what science tells us to do. Um, and so part of what, what that needs to start with is convincing people who haven't agreed with us in the past through the use of supportable data and good stories. And so we need to accelerate the uptake of, of the reality that you are going to make more money in the long run by implementing sustainable business practices, by relying on renewable energy, because there's a greater upfront investment perhaps, but the payout over the long term is going to be significantly greater. And I think we're starting to see this a little bit from China, because China is a country that operates on a generational time scale. You know, it, it, they operate with a very long view because of the way their government is set up, because of the way their economy is set up. Whereas in the US, we operate on a quarterly or an annual time scale. Did you make your profits this year for your shareholders? And so I don't necessarily see that shifting, but I think we can, we can push the conversation a little bit further in that direction. And I think the smart business minds that are here in, in America are going are gonna to understand that and, and we're going to start to see some shift. No, it's not going to be fast enough. That's 100% clear. 
Uh, and so that's why we need leaders who are going to push that, even in lieu of its unpopularity among certain circles, particularly the donor class. Given that we have all invested our careers in ocean protection, climate protection, citizen engagement, science, I feel like this will be a breath of fresh air to have a leadership that can utilize all of those components and bring us together, Michael, as you said, we have been so separated under this current administration that I'm really looking forward to some wonderful collaborations, some new innovations, and some really innovative ways to tackle these very thorny, magnificent problems that are ahead of us. And I think we can do it. And so I think that is exactly what we're looking at when we talk about the blue economy. That's my vision for the blue economy. And I, and I, I, I think it's a sort of a shared vision and it's, it's coming to a, a, um, a, a definition that the world understands that that's what we talk about when we talk about blue economy. Um, so I think that's, that's the path. And, that's, and I think that's what Biden and Harris are going to be pursuing. Well, I want to thank you so much to, um, or for joining us and sharing this shared vision that we have for a blue economy, a healthy environment, a healthy ocean. And I'm really looking forward to some positive changes. I'm looking forward to working with both of you as we, uh, as we encourage and, and nudge and, uh, and, and, you know, in a very friendly way, sort of, you know, push, push the pod forward uh, during the uh, Biden-Harris years of sanity, restored sanity. Absolutely. Ocean climate action is the future. You bet. Thanks so much to both of you for having me on. All right. Thank you, well, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. If you'd like to advertise on Rising Tide, contact us at info at bluefront.org. If you have suggestions for guests or topics, you can also contact us via info at bluefront.org. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.